The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll start reading at verse 17. Paul says, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, we come to um, the next section in 1 Corinthians, and it is dealing with the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper, of course, is one of two ordinances that Jesus gave to the church. And the first ordinance, of course, is baptism. We see that in the Great Commission, and we're able to celebrate that just this last Lord's Day. And then the other ordinance is the Last Supper, or the Lord's Supper, or the Lord's Table, or communion, or the breaking of bread, or there's a number of different words that we use for this ordinance. Um, unfortunately, <clears throat> the Lord's Supper was, in fact, the most controversial issue at the time of the Reformation among the Reformers. Uh, they were in agreement on so many things, but on the Lord's Supper, there was a tremendous amount of disagreement, and in fact, uh, at, at times, a very vehement disagreement. Uh, the Reformers were simply trying to do something, and that is they were trying to get back to the apostolic understanding and practice of the Lord's table. But there was very little success in reaching the agreement. Um, you might remember the famous story that I've told you before of Luther meeting with Zwingli at uh, the colloquy at Marburg. And uh, this is approximately 1524, 25 and uh, they had a number of articles. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to bring together the reformers that were known as the Zurichers, that is those in Zurich who were following Zwingli, and the Wittenbergers, and those that were following Luther. And they had like 16, 17 articles, and they agreed on all of the articles except one, and that was the article on the Lord's Supper. And at certain points during the colloquy, Luther himself became quite um, bombastic and belligerent, and which is in sync with Luther's personality. 
um, but he was um, absolutely um, unwilling to even entertain Zwingli's position, so much so that at the end, he said of Zwingli that he was convinced that Master Zwingli was of a different spirit. In other words, he even doubted his own conversion. So there's little, a little success in getting together over the Lord's Supper, but one thing was, um, was certain, and that is that all of the Reformers rejected the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. That is that the elements of the bread and the wine turn into the substance of our Lord's body and blood. So here we are five centuries later, and um, nobody's shedding each other's blood anymore over the Lord's Supper. Okay. Um, in fact, um, uh, I, I don't even think that we would have many martyrs that would be uh, <laughs> willing to shed their blood over the, their view of the Lord's Supper anymore. The reason is, is because it's, it's become relatively unimportant to us. I don't mean us, us. I mean the church at large. So a theology of the Lord's Supper is, is vitally important for the church. And the reason that a biblical theology of the Supper is important is because on the one hand, you can have a sacramental view of the Supper that affirms, let's say, Christ's physical presence in the bread and the wine, or in, around, over, and above the bread and the wine. And really what ends up happening, and this did happen in church history, is a lot of superstition grows up around the Lord's Supper. So much so that in the medieval period, they would have endless debates as to what would happen if uh, a piece of the host, after it had been consecrated, fell on the ground and a mouse came and ate it. Would the mouse have actually then ingested the body of Christ? Um, that's just pure superstition. It's nonsense, right? And so on the one hand, you get this, this um, uh, dangerous view that somehow taking the supper is, is what salvation is. Uh, in fact, sometimes um, even Jonathan Edwards' own grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, taught that the Lord's Supper was what he called a converting ordinance, that is, by taking the bread and the wine, um, it could be a means of grace that would lead to your conversion. And so on the one hand, there's a very dangerous idea of, of, of superstition and sacramentalism and, and, and actually eating physically, ingesting um, the body of Christ in a way that you get grace. Uh, but then on the other hand, there's the other danger of turning the Lord's Supper into some sort of mirror or naked memorial where we just simply kind of just think about, uh, well, I'm so thankful Jesus died for me. And then what ends up happening is the Lord's Supper gets gets relegated to getting tacked on at the end of a service where we kind of make sure we rush through it. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's amazing to me. You know, we, we try to do things differently here. But it's amazing to me to be in other places where communion is served and to not hear the pastor fence the table and give a warning to unbelievers not to partake. And, and so in, in our, let's say, um, less liturgical, evangelical culture, we, we've turned the Lord's Supper into something that it was never intended 
to be. So you walk into certain churches. I've seen this with my own eyes. And there's a little table up in the front where people just go and just take communion by themselves and uh, totally detached from the body. And it becomes this little privatized thing that they do. And so we go from either this superstitious sacramental view where the supper is almost magical to um, a thing where it is uh, just barely a ritual for us anymore that we just sort of tack on. And, uh, you know, and we have, um, in fact, have, have you seen these where you have the cup and then uh, the cup is hermetically sealed with the wine and then the, then the little wafer on top is, and it's got a, it's hermetically sealed. And so you just hand those out to people. And so nobody has to touch anything and risk germs. Well, what ends up happening is what we end up losing the significance of what the supper means as a means of grace. Jesus actually institutes the Lord's Supper on the night in which he was betrayed. And this was to be a, a, a meal that the church observes until when? Well, until he comes. This is to be a a normal part, a, a normal part of the rhythm of church life. When we get to the words of institution uh, in verse 23 and following, we're going to see Jesus actually commands us to do this. He's not just suggesting that communion is a good idea. He's actually commanding us to do it. And so it, it absolutely baffles me that we could have Christians who who profess to love Christ and yet can go for months and months and months and never come to a communion service and never observe the Lord's Supper, robbing their own soul and disobeying their Lord. Our confession has a really wonderful statement about the Lord's Supper. The Supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him the same night he was betrayed. It is to be observed in his churches to the end of the age as a perpetual remembrance and display of the sacrifice of himself in death. It is given for the confirmation of the faith of believers in all the benefits of Christ's death, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, and their further engagement in and to all the duties they owe him. The supper is to be a bond and pledge of their communion with Christ and each other. And then in paragraph 7, worthy recipients who outwardly partake of the visible elements in this ordinance, also by faith, inwardly receive and feed on Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. They do so really and truly, yet not physically and bodily, but spiritually. The body and blood of Christ are not present bodily or physically in the ordinance, but spiritually to the faith of believers, just as the elements themselves are present to their outward senses. And so here... Here we have um, a blessing that Jesus has given to the church that is given for our spiritual nourishment. We are coming to the table, and and what are we doing? We're actually feeding spiritually on Christ by faith. So it dawned on me a few months ago, I think it was, when um, because we don't play music or anything when we that's always been a distraction to me, like sing a hymn while you're distributing the elements or play a song in the background. 
So, you know, I want to be focused, right? Focused on the, on the, the Lord's Supper. And uh, so when there's nothing playing in the background and everybody starts eating, you know what you hear? You hear chomp, 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 right? And I think I made a comment a few months ago, that's, what is that the sound of? It's, that's the sound of faith. We're actually eating by faith. We are eating by faith as we spiritually feed on Christ and what he has done for us. And so the Lord's Supper is this incredible blessing. Uh, Horatius Bonar wrote this wonderful hymn. We sing it once in a while. Don't sing it enough. It's called, Here, O my Lord, I see thee face to face. And he says, Here would I feed upon the bread of God. Here drink with thee the royal wine of heaven. Here would I lay aside each earthly load. Here taste afresh the calm of sin forgiven. This is the hour of banquet and of song. This is the heavenly table spread for me. Here let me feast and feasting still prolong the brief bright hour of fellowship with thee. So how in the world could the Corinthians take something so wonderful and so beautiful and turn it into what they turned it into? As we come to this text, Paul is going to give us the most extensive instruction on the Lord's Supper anywhere in the New Testament. This is the most concentrated, most extensive teaching on the Lord's Supper. And the unfortunate thing is that in the midst of this uh, uh, intensive teaching, it comes to us because the Corinthians were abusing the table. They were perverting the ordinance. They were sinning in such a way that they were holding the church of God in contempt. And so, you know, God causes all things to work together for good. What if the Corinthians would have been actually observing the Lord's table in an honorable way? We'd never end up with this text. And so here we have this wonderful passage dealing with the Lord's Supper. It comes to us in three sections. We'll look at the first one tonight, 17 to 22, and that's where Paul actually deals with the Corinthians' abuse of the supper. Then 23 to 26 is the institution of the supper. So Paul is, is going to reiterate the tradition that he had received, no doubt from Luke. This is a, the Lucan version of the Lord's Supper. And then 27 to 34 is instructions and warnings for participating in the supper. So verse 17, Paul says, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. And so you remember how Paul starts this chapter, right? Remember a few weeks ago, Paul is actually giving praise to the Corinthians, right? And uh, he was commending them. He was affirming them. And, and, and we brought out the point that, that really uh, there was not a whole lot for Paul to commend about the Corinthians, but he commended what he could commend. And uh, in a sense, by commending them, sorts of, sort of gains their goodwill in order to instruct them. 
And now he gets to this section. So he dealt with men and women in worship and, and the head coverings and all that kind of stuff. And, and that was relatively mild. Now he gets to the section on the Lord's Supper. And there is uh, a taking off of the gloves. Okay. He says, I do not praise you. So New American Standard says, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. ESV, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. And so in other words, the instruction that I'm about to give you on the Lord's Supper, I do not praise you. Okay? And by the way, this is a figure of speech. When he says, I do not praise you, you actually realize that he's saying something stronger than just, I'm, I'm not giving you words of commendation right now. This is a figure of speech of, um, of an understatement. And so in the figure of speech of an understatement, sometimes called a litotes, if you believe it, uh, the understatement is for the purpose of emphasis. Okay? And so Paul's actually going to issue an incredible reprimand, a, a, a word of correction. And then he says something that seems absolutely strange to us. He says, so here's the reason I, I don't praise you. Because when you come together, by the way, that terminology, when you come together, that's technical terminology for coming together as the church. When you assemble together as the people of God, when you have church, okay, when you come together as a church, Paul says, it's actually not for the better, but for the worse. Could you imagine, right? When you gather together, when you assemble, what should be the primary what should be the primary focus of us assembling together? Worship. Which means that there's a person who is the primary focus of assembling together, right? It should be Christ. Right? We gather together and we have the the uh, intention to, to worship, that's what we assemble for. We think of it as we talk in terms of, um, you know, uh, so worship and, uh, and fellowship and edification and so forth. And so Paul says, when you guys get together, it actually is for the worse and not for the better. And you think to yourself, what, what situation could possibly compel Paul to say, when you assemble as Christians, as the church, it's actually better that you not do this, right? I mean, this is, this is stunning. You know, so we, we always think about, um, uh, like Hebrews 10.24, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some. And we usually think in terms of, uh, oh, people that forsake the assembling of God's people. And yeah, it's a sin. It's, it's wrong. It is a, a lack of priority, commitment, and all of that. Paul's saying, you guys have no problem assembling, but when you do, it's just a disaster. When you assemble for church, it is the first church of a total train wreck. And so Paul then begins to unfold this. So here they are. And, and so if, if it's, their gathering is for the worse and not for the better, you have to assume that what Paul is getting at here is that 
that when they gather, they don't have they don't have the focus and the intention that they should have as God's people. It's good to have the habit of assembling as God's people. It's a good habit, right? But we have to be intentional about our gathering. We have to go with an intention. Girls, you got to stop, okay? Thanks. We have to be intentional when we gather. Because if not, then we may have a good habit. But if we don't have the focus, then we're going to end up doing what? Gathering together and missing what we are supposed to be. So Paul begins to enumerate in verse 18. He says, first, so he, this is the way he's enumerating. First, when you come together in church... Again, notice the the, the specific language. It is significant. It speaks of the church assembling together as the church. And remember, the larger context is corporate worship. But here, now Paul's focusing on the fact that, that what is the church? Well, the church is not these walls. The church is what happens when God's people gather together for the specific and distinct purpose of worshiping, being under the word, and and being the body of Christ. And so Paul says, so first of all, when you gather as the church, literally when you gather in church, he doesn't mean locationally in a building, but when you gather as the church, I hear divisions exist among you. And then he says, and to some extent, I believe it. Now, where in the world would Paul have heard that divisions existed among them? Yeah, from Chloe's people. We see that all the way back in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. There was a report that had come from Chloe's people. Paul's actually going to mention Stephanus and Fortunus at the end uh, in 1 Corinthians 16 as well, and they may have brought a report. But the fact is, is that that Paul actually heard that there were some really terrible things that were happening and some really terrible attitudes. And so the first thing that we need to point out is when he says divisions, this is the term schismata, we get the word schism from this, and the idea is dissension or faction. Now, what Paul's describing here is an internal, internal schisms within the body, not, in a sense, groups splintering off from the body. Okay? In other words, he's not talking about um, people that are splitting off and going and starting their own thing. What he's talking about is certain attitudes within the body that are existing. Now, those attitudes are going to be, in a sense, along the lines of the rich and the poor. Then Paul says, and in part, I believe it. Or maybe we could say, I'm inclined to believe it. Now, 
commentators kind of go around as to the significance of what, what's, what's being said here. So it sounds, it sounds like Paul's being uh, cautious, right? I've heard a report, but I, I, I know there's always two sides to every story, and I haven't actually heard your guys' side yet. And, and so Paul may, in fact, um, just be being cautious here. That's totally plausible. He could just be being polite. Um, yeah, I, I partially believe it. Um, he could also be um, being a little derisive here. Uh, in other words, a little bit of sarcasm. I partially believe it. Could be translated more something like, um, oh, surely this couldn't be true of you people. Okay. Which, of course, would be Sarcasm, right? The idea, I I don't think that Paul actually has any doubt about the the reports themselves, and I think that Paul probably is being a little sarcastic here when he says, uh, oh, and in part I believe it. Like, ah, it's hard to really believe that you guys would do this after all. I mean, you guys are the Corinthians. And then Paul says something in verse 19. Paul says, for there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Now, how many of you think that's a strange-sounding verse? In fact, Paul, what Paul's saying is factions, dissension, is necessary at times. And the reason it's necessary is because it actually serves a purpose. The necessity, in a sense, is a divine necessity. It fits into God's purpose. Okay? Now, you have, to, you have to think about what Paul's saying here. Does Paul prize the unity of the body? Yeah, absolutely. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, Ephesians 4, 3, Right? Be at peace with all men whenever possible insofar as it depends on you, right? Um, there is a sense where, where unity is to be prized, it is to be cherished, it is to be protected, and so that it, unity is good. But Paul's saying that there are times where, where divisions are necessary, factions are necessary, and the reason is, is so that the approved might become manifest. So, in in other words, God uses division or dissension at times to distinguish between the unapproved and the approved. Now, we would prefer that he used other methods, all right? But the fact is, is that this is what God does at times. So, Think for a moment, um, one of the greatest schisms in church history. What would, what would be the greatest schism in church history? You say, oh, the, when uh, the Eastern Church and the Western Church split in what's called the Great Schism. If that was your guess, you'd be, you'd be close to right. There was a bigger schism than that, though. 
And it happened when Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the church door at Wittenberg. Actually, an event that we celebrate, right? Think, think about how, how, um, how offensive this sounds to people. We celebrate an event that divided the church. You ever think about that? We celebrate a schism that broke the church into two parts. Now, I would have a more favorable view, and that is that that schism actually, in one, in one sense, the true church continued. Okay. That's what happens at the Reformation, by the way. The true church continues. Okay. The schism that happens ends up doing what? Ends up showing by dissension who was approved and who wasn't. So sometimes things like that happen. So here's Paul, and he's not talking about the Reformation. He's not talking about some big, gigantic thing. He's talking about a, um, a, a, a local church that was having really serious problems as they observed the Lord's Supper, and he says there are these divisions among you. But the fact is, is that the divisions are necessary because the divisions end up making a distinction between the phony and the genuine. By the way, the, the, the word approved is, is the opposite of the idea of castaway. Approved, dokimos, that which has been tested and approved, that which is genuine. Paul says there, there's actually a really good reason why God allows in his sovereignty the divisions, and that is so that the approved could be made plain or could be made visible. Some people think that, that we should put the word approved in quotes because maybe that was a, a Corinthian term and Paul may be taking that Corinthian term and, and kind of redefining it. So the Corinthians could have been thinking about the approved, the dokimos, as those who, who had a, a certain self-proclaimed social status and Paul actually is um, turning that on its head and saying the, the really approved ones are not those who are approved because of their social status. They're the approved ones because they are in right standing with God, and God will make that known. There's something inherent in verse 19 of what Paul is saying, and that is that, that God will use things in a church, either a you know, the, the, the church at large or a local church, and he will use things that actually will make a distinction that will separate the chaff from the wheat. John tells us the same thing, doesn't he? They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they would have been of us, they would not have gone out from us. But in order to show that they were not of us, they went out from us. In other words, what John says is is, is the very same thing that Paul's saying here, and that is 
that, that sometimes when division happens, that what God is doing is he's drawing the line of, of those who are real and those who aren't. That's a hard one to swallow. Have you ever realized that if, um, if persecution broke out, let's say, on Saturday, that would be a great dividing line between the genuine and the phony? Sometimes God draws those lines. Now, Paul's going to continue, and he says in verse 20, therefore, when you come together in the same place. So again, what is he talking about? He's talking about gathering together in the same place. You're gathering together in the specified location where the church is to assemble. When you gather together, he turns around and he says, and it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. When you gather together, it is distinctly not for the purpose of eating the Lord's Supper. Now, the interesting thing is the way that, that Paul uh, describes the supper here. Um, he could have done it in, in a relatively generic way and just say the supper of the Lord. That is the Lord's Supper. But instead, he uses, um, sorry for the grammatical detail, but he uses the adjectival form of Lord, okay? The supper distinctly belonging to the Lord. The reason that's significant is because there's only one other place in the New Testament where the adjectival form of Lord is used, and that's in Revelation 1.10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. You have the Lord's Supper as that which is instituted by him and distinctly belongs to him, and you have the Lord's day, that which is distinctly instituted by him and belongs to him. So Paul says, when you come together, it's not actually to do what you're supposed to do as a church. So you have to understand, in the early church, it was probably something like this. There was a, probably a, what would be considered an agape feast. So you would, have, uh, you would have a gathering where there would be worship, where there would be fellowship, where there would be a meal, and then there would be a communion service or the observance of the Lord's Supper. And so the idea of the agape feast and the partaking of communion ends up becoming pretty uh, tightly associated with each other, okay? And um, similar, maybe, to what we do. We gather together, we hear the word, we sing, we pray, and then we eat together. And then after we eat on the first Lord's Day of the month, when we come back together and we follow that time up with another time of preaching and singing and observing the Lord's table. Okay. And so this would, have been, this would have been common. And what Paul's saying is, is when you come together in that place designated as the church, you don't come for the intended purpose. And then he says, and so here's the problem, for each takes his own supper first. <laughs> this, is, this is actually sort of this, this unbelievable sight, Right? So the, the, the only thing that we can really do to try to, try to uh, have the weight of this fall on us is to kind of put it in terms that we understand, you know. And so let's say you come and you've got, you've got two big crock pots, okay? 
and you've got, you've got meatballs in one, and you've got elk stew in the other, all right? And you bring your two big crock pots, and the intention of the agape meal is for you to share. But you don't share any of it. You eat it all yourself. Okay? In fact, you sit there and you pig out on what you brought You don't even wait for anybody. You don't wait for the deacons to set up the table. You guys scurry off. So let's just say family X. So scurry off, grab your crock pots, go over to the corner, just chowing down, pigging out on your own food, and you're not waiting for anybody else. And Paul says, each one takes their own meal first where there's supposed to be genuine koinonia, where there's supposed to be genuine sharing and fellowshipping around a meal. Instead, you take your own meal and you go off and eat. And so they were expected to share, but the rich, okay, picking out on their own stuff, leaving nothing for the poor. So what is the result? Verse 21, one is hungry and another is drunk. Now, I don't... I've never been to a Lord's Supper service that I can recall where somebody was drunk. At least not that I was aware of. We have had drunk people in service before, but it wasn't during the Lord's Supper. Remember the one guy that fell out of his chair over here in the aisle? Remember that? (laughs) It was great. We uh, picked him up and and, uh, he, he says, I guess I shouldn't have taken my medication with my beer or something like that. But anyway, it's just, it's not a common experience. But Paul says, this is the report that I get. So you go and you eat your own meal first. And then as a result, someone is left hungry while somebody else is drunk. So the poor come in and there's nothing left for them. And in fact, all the wine is now gone too. And so there they are coming in, they're hungry. The rich are already full and full of wine. Now, now some have actually pointed out that that in in larger homes in first century Greco-Roman world, you would have had a, um, what would have been called a a triclinium, which would have been, that would have been the large dining room that you could probably seat about 40, 50 people. And then you had the atrium, which was, sort of like a foyer area. And so the speculation is is that um, the the wealthy all come in to the the large dining room where they're eating and drinking, and then the poor come in, and they're in the foyer, and there's nothing for them to eat or to drink. Amazing. Amazing. The schism, the dissension, the division was between the haves and the have-nots. That was the division. Paul then says in verse 22, in this... I will not praise you. Verse 22, he says, don't you have your own houses for eating and drinking? Now you have to understand, Paul's not saying, hey, if you're going to gorge yourself, 
and be a glutton and a drunkard. Just do it at home. Okay? That's not the point. Okay? It, it is, uh, it's a little hyperbole. Okay? In other words, don't you have your own homes in which you can eat and drink? And, in, and so there's a, there's a sense where Paul is absolutely indignant at this point. And uh, it's like, if you want to pig out on your own food and your own drink, do it at home, not when you gather together as God's people. So Paul has a sense of, of righteous indignation with them. And then he says this. Do you despise the church of God? Their attitude was actually holding the church in contempt. Scorning. Despising. They were disregarding the stated purpose for which they should be gathering If we gather for the intended purpose of worshiping God and building up one another, and yet we're gorging ourselves and getting drunk, who has the gathering become about? About me. About me. I take Paul's statement to the Corinthians to be very simple, and that is, When you disregard the reason for which you are gathering, and you make it about yourself, you're actually holding the church of God in contempt. You're despising the church. Now, they wouldn't have said, by by any stretch, it's not as if they would have said, uh, we hate the church, we hate the church. They would not have been been verbally contemptuous towards the church. But what Paul's saying is, is that that divisive heart where you now have have actually, as as you can say, humiliated those who don't have anything. As you've done that, as you've made a distinction between yourself who has and those who have not, as you've done that, what you've ended up doing is you have, you have held in contempt the church of God. And the reason you hold in contempt the church of God is because the church is to be one body. The church is to have a, a unity in God's spirit. There is to be a common bond that we have in Christ Jesus. And the minute that you begin with with attitude of the heart and and conduct to create division within it, in in a sense what Paul's saying is you're looking with scorn upon the church of God. There's an interesting thing that happens when people get uh, upset with the church. What are some common reasons people get upset with the church? If, if you say something, I'm not going to think that that's 
what your problem is. What's that? Oh, okay. Okay. So people, people get upset with the church because they, they, they think that they observe hypocrisy. Okay. Oh, okay. Music, sure. Yeah, not me. Yeah, how about just like just not meeting, not meeting my needs? Nobody ever says these are my felt needs. They just say these are my needs, right? <laughs> so, I, I mean, you're not meeting my needs, right? Hypocrisy. What are we doing when we go, you know what? I hate the church because it's filled with hypocrites. We're, what's that? Oh, yeah, we're judging. And we're making a basic assumption about ourselves, which is, I'm not a hypocrite, okay? Oh, you, you can see how the logic of this breaks down very quickly, right? Okay. And, and that is, guess what? So we all, we all have hypocrisy in our hearts, okay? That doesn't mean that you're a hypocrite like the Pharisees were a hypocrite, okay? But we all say that we're one thing and we have pockets in our lives that that if that's all somebody could see about us they would think that we were just lying okay but the minute that i say i'm upset with the church because there are too many hypocrites then what i've done is i've made a division between me the non-hypocrite and everybody else who is the hypocrite and that is just fiction it's judgmental critical fiction that's now making the church. So what I'm saying is, I'd like the church if I thought everybody was more like me. Can I tell you that would be a miserable assembly? Yeah. All right. So, hypocrisy. Music. Okay. I don't like the music. Okay. Now, I think it's important that you're able to worship with a good conscience and all of that. I don't like, I don't like, I don't like this. I don't like that. I don't like, I don't like the fact that Jason doesn't regularly wear a tie, okay? If he was actually more spiritual, okay, so I don't either. I'm just, okay. But what we end up doing is we end up setting a standard that we're holding all of God's people to. And then when that standard isn't met, we sit in judgment over the body, thinking that we're better. And we're not. We're not. Or my opinion is more important. Well, it's not. In, in fact, how, how does the idea of holding the church in contempt square with, but consider one another as more important than yourself. There are other reasons people get upset for church. Uh, I, don't, I don't feel like my needs are being met. Okay? And there are times where, where you, you want to say, look, I think it's important that as we come together as the body of Christ, that, 
that, um, that you're fed and that you're built up. And, 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 and church really is not about you giving to God. It's about God coming and meeting his people and helping his people and giving grace to his people. And, and, and I'm all in favor of that because I don't contribute anything to God. He's not served with human hands as if he needed anything. But in him, we live and move and have our being, right? So I'm, I'm all in favor of saying, you know what? As I come to church, I realize that I come as a needy person. But what do I need? Well, I need the gospel. I need the love of God. I need the word of God. I don't need 12 people to tell me that I look really nice. I actually don't even need 12 people to make sure they say hi to me. There can be a lot of really wicked things that start to happen in our perspective about the church when it becomes more about us than about Christ. So, Paul is really not holding back at this point. You turn around and you humiliate those who have nothing. Their contempt for the church was simply demonstrated by the way they treated other people who were different than them. What an absolute tragedy. What an absolute tragedy. Paul says, what shall I say? <laughs> have you ever been to that, at that point with your kids? What am I supposed to say? You're almost at a loss, right? You're almost at a loss. I don't even know what to say. What shall I say? Shall I praise you? And then Paul just emphatically says this, I shall not praise. In other words, no way. No way. So here's here's the amazing thing. The Lord's Supper is supposed to be a manifestation of the unity of the body. You know where I get that, right? 1 Corinthians 10, 17, one loaf, one body, right? So the observance of the, of the supper is supposed to be this manifestation of the unity of the body. And of course, what is our unity? Our unity is in Christ. And so it doesn't matter whether you're whether you're male or female, Jew or Greek, rich or poor, slave or free, we're all one in Christ, right? And so the supper is supposed to be a demonstration of the body coming together. Paul says, when division and schism and faction are present in the church as you come together. It is absolutely contrary to the spirit of the Lord's Supper. Absolutely contrary. And in fact, even more than just contrary, it is contemptuous to have divisiveness and faction. And so the supper, think about this. 
So we, we, we bring this table down. We put the table off to the side. By the way, we'll, we'll do a theology of the Lord's Supper by the time we're, we finish this text. But you understand why um, we don't have an altar. You understand why uh, the pulpit is the centerpiece of the, the, the furnishing for the church. Because of the centrality of the word. Okay? There's also a reason why the supper or the table is below the pulpit and off to the side, and that is the administration of the ordinance is under the authority and administration of the word. Okay? So th- these things are not just accidental. All right? And so there's something that is supposed to happen. So we come to the end of the sermon. We have the bread and the cup. I fence the table. We'll talk about that when we get to the last section. And then I have the men come up, and then I give an exhortation to, um, to use this time to confess your sins. And then we take these trays, and these trays, we actually do what? We don't have you line up and come up to the front. I don't stand up here and put it in your mouth. Okay. You hand it to each other. Do you know that's intentional as well? We hand it to each other. And what we're doing when we take the supper together is we are saying first... We're all in the same boat. We're all sinners. Whether you've got money or you don't, whether you're you're rich or poor, whether you're black or white, that doesn't make any difference. We're all in exactly the same boat, and that is we are all sinners in need of a Savior. And we also are proclaiming to each other that that God has made provision for us through his son. God's given us a savior. And as we hand that bread to each other and as we hand that cup to each other, and then notice I always say, so what, what do we do? You ever notice this? I always make a point of saying, hold on to the element until everybody has been served so that we all partake together. This isn't, I get the bread and wolf it down as soon as I get it. I hold on to it. And we eat together. And we drink together. And the reason that we eat and drink together is a demonstration of our union with Christ and our unity with one another by His Spirit. And so the Lord's Supper is this this declaration of not only the common ground of our sin and our need of a Savior, but of that great union which we have with Christ, which is now demonstrated in the very way that we eat and drink together. We We are actually doing something. We are even though we may not say any verbal or audible words that come out of our mouth, what we're doing is we're making a declaration with tangible words 
The bread is a word. The cup is a word. The bread is the word of the body of Christ given for us. The bread is Christ as the living bread come down out of heaven from the Father. The bread is the bread of life. It's symbolized in that little, in that this little tiny piece. It doesn't, doesn't matter how big or how little the piece is. It's the bread that is, that is speaking volumes. And when you put that bread in your mouth and you chew it, you eat it and you swallow it, you are saying, Christ is mine. I appropriate what he has done for me, symbolized by eating. And then we take the cup and the cup proclaims words. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission for sin. In his blood, we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And then we drink it together. Paul says, this is, a, this is beautiful. It's beautiful. He looks at the Corinthians He says, you've perverted something that is so good that God has given to us. And you've perverted it with your own divisive hearts. When we come to the table, we should have, we should have two things that are just just bubbling out of us. I looked at a bunch of communion hymns today, and you, you know, th- there are some really wonderful ones. Spurgeon has a wonderful, here uh, um, uh, amidst us, our beloved stands. There are some wonderful communion hymns. But you know, the communion hymns, you know what they do? They all have a purely vertical focus. You're hard-pressed to find any horizontal implications of the supper in the hymnody. Now, there aren't a lot of hymns about the Lord's Supper to begin with. But there should be something that, that just bubbles up inside of us. As we eat the bread and drink the cup, that is, that is my own personal celebration of the gospel of grace and the forgiveness of my sins there's a reason why we close with the hymn that we close with. We used to close with, there is a fountain filled with blood. We did it for the same reason. It's now, now, now rejoicing, declaring out loud, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. As I eat and drink, I'm declaring that. I'm declaring that to myself. I'm declaring it to you. But there's something else. As we partake of the Lord's Supper, there should be this this wonderful sense. I am so glad I am a part of the family of God. These people are my brothers. These people are my sisters. We share a common Savior. 
we partake of a common salvation. And we're not only, we not only belong to him, we belong one to another. The Corinthians were destroying that. So may God help us. May God help us to come to the supper with a right heart and a right attitude. Not only towards God, but towards one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage and we thank you for the reminder of the bread and the cup. We thank you that it reminds us of the wonderful, matchless love of our Savior. Father, that we would need to be reminded is an amazing thing. But we thank you that you're patient and you're kind with us. Father, we pray that as as your people, that as we gather together, especially with the purpose of observing the supper, that you would help us to have hearts that are schism-free, divisive-free, and hearts that are united, not only to you, but to our brothers and sisters. How you must be pleased as our Heavenly Father when your children get along. Receive our praise tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.